Governor DeSantis told me something uh, very interesting when we were working on uh, some higher education reform together. He said, Chris, you know, if you're not driving a massive number of hysterical attacks uh, from the media against what you're doing here, you're not doing the job. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, July 27th. I'm Rob Bluey. And those were the words of Chris Rufo of the Manhattan Institute. He's the author of a new book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. You're probably familiar with Rufo's work, either because you've read it at the Daily Signal, watched him on television, or followed him on social media. He is at the forefront of exposing critical race theory, DEI, and the left's agenda to undermine traditional American values. His new book is a comprehensive history of the left's key figures and its playbook for infiltrating America's institutions and indoctrinating our children. Before we get to my interview with Chris Rufo, let me tell you about the Heritage Foundation's Young Leaders Program. Heritage is the most effective conservative policy organization in the country, and every semester, our interns are a vital part of that mission. We pay competitively, we develop talent, and we give our interns access to some of the sharpest political minds in the country. We are going on offense, and we want them to join us. To learn more about the Young Leaders Program at the Heritage Foundation, please go to heritage.org intern. Chris Rufo is the author of a brand new book called America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. He joins us on today's edition of the Daily Signal podcast. Chris, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Rob. Your book provides one of the most comprehensive stories of how the left had its long march through institutions. And when we talk about institutions, we're talking about multiple institutions. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about it today. I really appreciate how you break down and tell these stories and focus on some of the different people and players involved in this. Uh, but first, before we get into some of the content and the details, why was it important for you to put this together all in one package in the form of this book? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, it was a process of working backwards. And many of Daily Signal readers probably know me as the uh, preeminent critic of critical race theory. I did the reporting, exposing CRT in our institutions. Um, I did advocacy work with former President Trump and state legislators and governors to get critical race theory out of the curriculum and out of uh, so-called DEI training programs. But while I was running that campaign and doing that journalistic work, I really wanted to go deeper and understand where does this come from? How did our institutions suddenly seem like they were all captured by this ideology? And how did this ideology work through over the decades to gain power? And so the research for this book and then the writing of this book was really designed to answer those questions and to show uh, the full scope of this long march from its beginnings in 1968 to its conclusion or culmination in that summer of 2020 with the George Floyd riots, uh, when it seemed like uh, everything from the, from the schools to the corporations to the, to the, to the government to uh, the media organizations were all in the grips of the BLM and critical race theory style ideology. Well, certainly so. And uh, that's one of the things that I think uh, we obviously spotted as well. One of the things that I think readers can can expect when they pick up your book is 
uh, you tell these stories, but you also document everything very thoroughly. So the pages of pages of footnotes at the end of the book are also, I think, uh, probably a, a point that you're proud of because it'll show to the left and those who may criticize uh, your work that you have uh, have documented it very accurately. Um, you know, let's talk about the different uh, approach that you took. So you divided the book into four different parts, revolution, race, education, and power. You tell a story about an individual in each of those different parts of the book. Uh, let's go through those in order, starting with the father of the revolution. Can you tell us about who he is? Yeah, absolutely. The beginning of the book, it opens with a biographical portrait of a uh, German-American philosopher named Herbert Marcuse. And uh, Marcuse is not discussed uh, a ton uh, today, but um, he was really, uh, at the time, the father of the new left. You know, student radicals were marching in 1968 um, all over the United States and all over Europe, uh, sometimes carrying banners. Um, Marx, Mao, Marcuse. Uh, and, and they said that Marx was the kind of the, the god or the prophet um, uh, you know, Mao was the sword who, who had revolution that was violent. Uh, and then Marcuse was their translator uh, for the modern West. He was the, the philosopher for their time. And so his work is useful in, in understanding that moment. Um, his work is also useful in a philosophical and theoretical sense because he developed the concepts, the vocabulary, um, and, and even the specific phrases that are still used today, that still characterize and define uh, the modern uh, American left wing. And, and so the, 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 the process of writing the book is to weave together these biographical portraits, weave together some political analysis, and then showing how these ideas made, made conquered the institution, so bringing in some historical evidence, and then using the investigative reporting that I've been doing for the last few years to show exactly how far these ideas have traveled and actually revealing them in our institutions today. So the, the, the writing, I think, is really engaging for readers because it's a very lively, um, very spirited, very well-documented combination of all of these elements. And it's not like a typical political book that just makes a straight-ahead logical argument. This is my thesis. Here's, here's why you should believe it's true, and here's my conclusion. Um, it's really a narrative nonfiction portrait of, of a movement uh, over the period of time. And while, of course, I embed arguments within the narrative, it reads more like a story than it does a logical proof or a you know, kind of philosophical tract. Well, in some of the most... And some of the most captivating stories are certainly uh, about Angela Davis. Uh, and, and I learned a lot myself from, from your book about her and uh, the, the past that I don't think, frankly, our, our broader culture really understands the radical nature of what she was preaching, the fact that she was wanted by the FBI, tried for a conspiracy to murder, all of these things that you go through and document in, in, in vivid detail. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about Angela Davis, obviously somebody who's still living to this day and who's had a profound impact on the new left. Yeah, and, and Angela Davis is really, uh, in some ways, the key figure in the book. And, and it was so shocking when I was doing the research. Um, she, of course, wrote a, a very famous autobiography when she was still very young after her trial and acquittal. Um, but there wasn't much else out there about Angela Davis. Um, there was really no uh, deep kind of scholarly biography on her life that was available that, that shed light on some of these questions. And so all that was there was really her, her self-definition and her autobiography 
and then all of the uh, hagiography, all of the, the praise pieces from magazines and newspapers over the last 50 years. But Angela Davis is important. She was the student of Herbert Marcuse. She was a, a, a pioneer in uh, uh, black American communism. She was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party USA. She, she gave them the 50 cents uh, to register with the Communist Party. Um, she was a pivotal figure in academia, really um, uh, uh, anticipating and laying the foundation for critical race theory, which emerged in subsequent decades. And then she was the personal mentor um, and the philosophical inspiration for the Black Lives Matter movement founders. Uh, you know, she has a personal relationship and then was, of course, celebrated uh, with these splashy magazine articles from Vanity Fair, the New York Times Magazine, and other publications in that summer of 2020. So even the left, not just me, but even the left acknowledged that Angela Davis was really an inspiration, if not the inspiration behind BLM. And, and, and yet there was really nothing about her, certainly from a conservative perspective. So I had to dig into the archives. I had to dig into primary source material. Um, I had to dig into uh, a, a, a vast number of sources to get an actual picture of, of Angela Davis that was not distorted through the praise and admiration that she got uh, from the left over the last 50 years. And so I think even just for that, not, not even showing how her ideas influenced the, the kind of modern left, I think even for that, even just for that, it's quite valuable because you, you get a sense with these personalities, these heroes of the left, that actually once you look into the facts uh, and, and the, the evidence um, uh, of their biographies, it's quite a different picture that emerges. It's something not of these idealistic heroes, but in some sense, these cynical operators who've uh, unleashed havoc and destruction on the very people that they claim to be helping. You, you can, you've got that absolutely correct. And it's amazing to me, the picture that has been painted of Angela Davis by the broader media and uh, a comparison to what you document in your book. Uh, it, I would say that for anybody uh, who, who's picking up a copy, that alone is, uh, is, is a story that uh, we're grateful that you've documented so well. Uh, we're talking to Christopher Rufo. He's the author of America's Cultural Re Revolution. Uh, and one of the areas where you have had a profound effect on American politics and policy is the education system here. Obviously, during COVID and post-COVID, we saw a number of educational institutions uh, move sharply to the left in terms of their practices, including K-12 through schools. Uh, and you, you also document that this is an area where the left has concentrated its focus and attention. Why has the education system been so important for them in order to capture capture perhaps the next generation of Americans? I, I mean, it, it's because of a very basic insight that goes back to the, to the ancient Greek philosophers who recognized it very clearly. Plato in his way and, and, and Aristotle as well were in agreement that uh, the education of children is a core function uh, of a society, of a, of a republic, and that children must be educated into the political regime. That is the paramount duty. And, and um, of, of, of a society, of, of educators, of, of citizens. And, and I think what's happened in recent decades, unfortunately, is that conservatives um, forgot about that insight. And certainly after, um, uh, after the victory of, of the United States and the West over uh, communism and the Soviet Union, it almost seemed as if conservatives relinquished uh, control over education, relinquished uh, their interest in governing the education system. 
and, and simply was, was satisfied that the public schools, if they were not perfect, were at least neutral, you know, vaguely patriotic, and were administering education uh, toward these quantifiable metrics. So uh, towards test taking and towards uh, 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 kind of you know, test outputs. And so the, the focus of so much conservative education advocacy, in my mind, and my reading of it, was that what can we do to improve uh, you know, scores? But they paid actually relatively uh, little attention to the content of, of the curriculum, to the uh, virtues and values embedded in that curriculum. Um, and, and I think that this was an immense mistake. And so um, while I, of course, think that we should improve uh, uh, educational attainment, while we should uh, fight for charter schools, which, which we've seen some success with lately, partially and due to um, the exposure of CRT, um, I think conservatives are finally remembering, and certainly Heritage Foundation's uh, great uh, uh, education team that I've, with whom I've worked closely over the years, is really leading the way and saying, hey, wait a minute, um, it's not just about test taking, it's not just about these quantifiable metrics, it's actually about the values and virtues and, and content that we bring, and it's actually about cultivating successful citizens and shaping successful citizens. And the, the left has known this the whole time. And, and in fact, they, they've, they've deliberately um, and, and very strategically and very successfully captured the institutions that train teachers, captured the institutions that uh, then teach children in, in the K through 12 public schools. And they're now trying to shape those children in accordance with their political ideology. And, and my point that I make over and over to conservatives is that institutions are never neutral. Institutions will always be guided by a set of values. The only question is uh, which values and, 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 and who is administering and governing uh, the transmission of those values. And so those are the two key questions um, that I show very clearly in the book. Uh, it's the wrong values uh, administered by the wrong kind of people. And I think it's a wake-up call for conservatives to really re-engage. Chris, as a, as a resident of uh, Fairfax County in Northern Virginia, which has had its share of obviously these controversies, uh, it's something yes. that I pay close attention to. Uh, one of the things that I found alarming were some of the stories that you captured in the book, particularly on the West Coast, uh, closer to your home, and, and just how radical uh, the policies are that these uh, school administrators are, are uh, foisting on, on the next generation of, of Americans. Uh, one of the things that I think that maybe helps put things in perspective, and, and I've heard you speak about this, is we as conservative always point to school choice and, and all their alternatives, homeschooling that uh, parents can opt for. But somewhere close to 90%, I think I've heard you say, of, of right. students in America are in public schools. So why does it matter uh, at the end of the day, uh, those big questions that you, you posed when, uh, when so many of our students are, are in these environments and captive audience? Yeah, it, it, this is a big kind of intra-right debate. So conservatives are having this debate. Uh, you know, we're debating amongst ourselves. But um, the, 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 actually, the answer is very, very, very simple. Um, it has to be a both-and strategy. Um, I am a, an absolute uh, kind of diehard uh, advocate for school choice. I've worked closely with uh, legislators and, and activists like Corey DeAngelis and Heritage Foundation team and, 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 and political leaders to, to get school choice into the law books in, in state after state. We're seeing massive traction there for the first time. And, um, and so I, I see my fight against CRT as, as, as um, really contributing 
uh, and I try to channel that, that energy into uh, uh, the, the legislative fight for school choice. But even in those states like Arizona that now have universal school choice, parents are opting into that system, 90% approximately of the kids are still in public schools. So those schools and the curriculum in those schools are going to shape the experience and the worldview for the large majority of American kids for the foreseeable future, no matter how successful that school choice programs are. And so you cannot merely say, as long as I can opt out, my kids will be fine. I mean, thank God for that. That is a baseline minimum that we should have. But we should also make sure that we, we, we don't um, uh, uh, just relinquish the, the responsibility to, to govern the public institutions that will be providing the education for most kids. Because at the end of the day, our society will be shaped by, by education for the great majority of students that, that until now and for the foreseeable future will be in the public K-12 school system. So we have to fight simultaneously on both fronts. We cannot give up, we cannot just retreat, um, although that is, it, it, the, the construction of alternatives is essential. Uh, it, is, it is essential but not sufficient for the fight ahead. I'm so glad you brought up some of the legislative work and the accomplishments that conservatives have been able to achieve. What states, as you assess this environment, are, are doing the best? Uh, you mentioned Arizona. Are there other places that uh, Daily Signal listeners maybe want to look to as a model uh, or an example for who's getting it right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that really we have to talk about Arizona first and foremost. And, uh, you know, I got to know Governor Ducey uh, during his time in office and spent significant time with him. Um, I mean, he is a really stellar leader and example of exactly how to do it. Um, those who are, uh, those, of them, uh, those of us on the right, or really those on the right who are more kind of Reaganite, a bit more uh, uh, traditional conservatives, kind of more business-oriented conservatives, um, you know, Governor Ducey is very much uh, amenable and very much a, a supporter of that kind of um, economic freedom message. Um, he is a, had been a longtime diehard champion for school choice. He tried to get school choice throughout his eight years in office, uh, but as he explained to me um, in very blunt terms, he said that he was never able to get it done until those final years, um, and, and what really tipped the scale for him was COVID, um, the school lockdowns and masking and, and really exposing the public schools for not putting the interest of kids first, and then critical race theory and gender ideology. Um, those are the two issues that I've been working on, exposing in the public schools. He said that was really the last straw for so many parents to say, hey, we need alternatives. Um, and then he was a very shrewd negotiator with, with, with the legislators. And actually increasing funding for the K-12 schools by a billion dollars um, to negotiate with some of those holdouts, even among rural Republicans. And he said to me, he said, look, I'm a, I'm a small government guy, but writing that billion dollar check to increase funding to get those last votes that were necessary is worth it because now we're, 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 we're kickstarting and we're really spearheading this incredible systemic reform to our education system. Um, and, and simultaneously though, Governor Ducey was one of the first governors to ban critical race theory in their K through 12 public schools and to, to, and to, to actually fight for the, a better curriculum to, Im, to implement civic, uh, civic education in the K through 12 schools in Arizona. And so to me, um, uh, while the, uh, I love you know, a governor like Governor DeSantis, who is a kind of swashbuckling cons cultural conservative, fighting on these issues, getting all of those headlines. Um, I've, I've been working with him, and he's a wonderful 
uh, immensely talented leader. Um, uh, I, I think Governor Ducey at the end of the day was really the, the kind of leader who was putting the people first, putting parents first, and governing with the kind of responsible message of saying, we're going to get universal school choice, we're going to negotiate to make that happen, but we're also going to make sure that we have a good, solid, civic-minded, uh, uh, kind of anti-CRT curriculum in those public schools. Well, there are so many opportunities, including in Texas, hopefully later this year, to do some really good work on education freedom and school choice. So that's uh, an area that uh, we're keeping a close eye on here at the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation. And so thank you for uh, the work that you've done and the advocacy on, on behalf of so many parents and students in, in states. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you, uh, the last chapter, you talk about the counter-revolution. So what do you see happening next? Uh, you've, you've outlined this this detailed analysis of the, the left's march through these institutions, but what is the counter-revolution? Yeah, the, the, the counter-revolution to me um, is, is, a, is a term or a concept that signifies seriousness of purpose and depth of analysis, because um, if you believe, as I think more and more conservatives are truly believing and understanding in visceral terms in their own lives, that we are going through uh, America's cultural revolution. Um, the solution cannot be incrementalism or reform around the edges. Um, it has to, to meet the revolution um, uh, with as much seriousness of purpose um, and, and, and as much ambition uh, of policymaking. And so um, what I propose is a kind of radical and audacious uh, pr a program of counter-revolution. Um, and, and I think that if you look at the history of the West over the last few hundred years, uh, the thing that has always haunted Marxist revolutionaries is always a, a counter-revolutionary movement that erases all of their gains and then reconquers territory and reorients it towards a, a, a different system of values. And so the, the antidote, in my view, to what I think of as the revolution of 1968 is the principles of the revolution of 1776. And so if we hold these principles side by side, in my view, the principles of, of 1968 or the principles of 2020, the George Floyd revolution, are not compatible with the principles of 1776 and the principles of Abraham Lincoln and the 14th Amendment. And so we will either have this system or the other system. And so we have to fight um, with, 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 the, with the seriousness and with the commitment and the conviction and the passion and the ambition that is necessary uh, for the principles of 1776 to triumph. That's so true. Thank you for, for putting it so, so bluntly and, uh, and succinctly there. I think that hopefully that is an inspiring message to all of the people listening to this interview um, to make sure that they're doing their part uh, to live up to, uh, to those ideals and, uh, and to fight back. Uh, a couple of final questions for you. You have faced your share of criticism from the left and increasingly, it seems, from some quarters on the right, uh, as you, you alluded to in a previous answer. Uh, well, so what motivates you? What keeps you going every day? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, this is politics. The criticism is, is part of it. And, you know, Governor DeSantis told me something uh, very interesting when we were working on uh, some higher education reform together. He said, Chris, you know, if you're not driving a massive number of hysterical attacks uh, from the media against what you're doing here, you're not doing the job. And so, uh, and, and I appreciated that because I think that, that the governor understands better than anyone um, 
that, uh, that, that to do the right thing in the current media environment um, will we'll drive a massive amount of criticism in the media, but ultimately the people can see through the criticism and the people will reward conservatives who stand on principle, who, who, who fight uh, the good fight, uh, and who actually accomplish tangible goals for the people that they represent. And so uh, he's done that in the state of Florida, really, in my mind, better than anyone. And so I, I use him as a model for that. And, and, and in actuality, I, I really have learned to enjoy uh, the criticism, enjoy the debate, enjoy some of the sparring, and, and actually turn it to my advantage. And so I think that conservatives, you know, look, we're outnumbered 500 to 1 as far as the broader media ecosystem. And so we have to get very comfortable with these kind of lines of attack, and we have to develop the strategies and tactics to turn them to our advantage. Um, and, 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 and more than anything, to be honest, just from a personal point of view, you have to be able to hold them a bit outside yourself and not internalize them. And if you can maintain that, that, that distance, that personal and psychological distance, um, and not internalize uh, some of those headlines, um, I think that's how you can really survive and that's how you can uh, keep waking up every day and, uh, um, and, and having fun and, and pushing and fighting and, and experimenting and always moving forward. Well, thank you on behalf of so many other conservatives for fighting on the front lines and sometimes going into enemy territory, as I know you've done, uh, to make, uh, make the points that, uh, that you do so articulately. Uh, in addition to the book, uh, you are also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and working on a critical race theory project. What's next on your horizon? What can we expect from Christopher Rufo in the future? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question. Thank you. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, the book really lays out the problem. It, it documents America's cultural revolution over time. And in the very last chapter, it suggests some of the, in broad strokes, what a counter-revolution might look like. And then in the coming weeks, you know, the next probably four to six weeks, I'll be publishing a series of uh, 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 essays and policy in a policy symposium uh, with Manhattan Institute that are going to outline in more concrete terms what a counter-revolutionary conservative agenda will look like. And so I hope that this book lays a narrative foundation for, let's say, the upcoming presidential campaign, uh, but also starts to get the concrete policy agenda uh, into the conservative ecosystem, certainly into the public conversation so that those candidates, whoever the candidate might be at the end, will be armed with a policy agenda that can reverse uh, and overtake uh, this counter-revolution that has uh, really plagued uh, this country. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll, we'll uh, certainly look forward to, to reading more about that. And I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, plug the fact that we published an excerpt of the book on The Daily Signal uh, last week, uh, specifically about how the left conquered the New York Times, which I found to be a fascinating uh, story in and of itself. Uh, final question for you. Where can our audience follow your work? Where can they pick up a copy of the book? Yeah, America's Cultural Revolution uh, debuted as the number one bestseller on Amazon last week. It's available anywhere books are sold. There's also an audible audiobook uh, version available. And then you can find me on Substack at rufo.substack.com. That's where I publish all of my articles, essays, podcasts, videos, films, everything. Um, it's totally free to subscribe. Uh, so make sure you do so. Well, Christopher Rufo, thank you again. Again, the book is called America's Cultural Revolution. It's uh, an excellent read. I uh, have personally picked up a copy of that audio book and have been enjoying it on my commute and encourage our Daily Signal audience uh, to support you, pick up a copy, and they'll learn a great deal about 
the left if they do. Thank you again for joining us on the Daily Signal podcast today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't had a chance, be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed, where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts. And help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. We'll be back with you at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.